0: So we're going to continue our exploration of what we could call the great matter of birth and death that we have been considering the last few days. And tonight I want to look at this great matter through the lens of some of our very familiar but perhaps unexamined beliefs and assumptions about our lives and about death itself. Some of our unexamined assumptions. And I'd like to begin with an assumption that is deeply ingrained in all of us. And it came to my mind this morning when, I think it was only this morning, when Eugene was talking about the momentariness of our existence and giving us the instruction of the wheel and the contact of the wheel with the ground. And... That teaching of the momentariness of our existence, that there is actually in reality a radical discontinuity moment to moment. We don't ordinarily see it or realize it because we, because of this unexamined assumption that I want to look at with you, we wallpaper over it. With a deeply ingrained assumption of continuity. We assume moment to moment, day to day, week to week, year to year, that we will, our lives will continue. It's almost like, duh, well, yeah. (laughs) You know, we just so deeply assume that. We assume continuity of existence. Right now, we are making plans based on an assumption that we will be alive tomorrow. That we will be here and that we will be leaving Spirit Rock and we will be going back into the life that we have known and that we will continue. This is what we know, and we assume it will continue. There's a Simon and Garfunkel song some of you may remember with the lyrics. We continue to continue to pretend that our life will never end. Remember that song? I would sing it to you if I could sing, but I. it's a good one. We continue to continue to pretend that our life will never end. This habit of assuming continuity in our lives is very strong. As I said, it is deeply held in the human psyche. Even when someone is actively dying, like the man in hospice who two days before his death was making plans about what he would do when he got off the morphine and went home, it is our habit to imagine the future will be like the past. And that includes us being there. Because if we look closely at our assumption that things will continue, we see that the continuity we imagine is intimately connected to a sense of self. What continues? Me. I continue. When we plan our future, we see ourselves becoming the person we imagine. The Buddha called this the activity of becoming or taking birth. We take birth in our imagination as a happy person or a person who is healthier and person who is maybe more enlightened than we are now, or we take birth as a failure, as a person who has, you know, made a mistake or is not worthy of something. But in any case, we expect ourselves to continue in some form, for better or for worse. We take birth over and over and over again. It is a kind of holding on, a deeply ingrained habit. We hold on to the idea of ourselves continuing, and it's such a habit that we never question it. The Buddha questioned it. The Buddha showed us how to see through it, to see the illusion for what it is. And of course, one of the primary ways of doing this is to bring attention to impermanence itself, to bring attention to how it is that everything is in a process of change, ceaselessly, endlessly, everything, everything outside of us, everything in our minds, everything in our bodies is in a constant process of change. And this begins, this awareness begins to break up this sense of solidity and enduring continuity. Now, this is not to say that we shouldn't plan, or that we won't continue in the ways that we have imagined, but our mistake is in the assumption that we will. Yes, we have to make plans. Yes, we have to act as if in some ways, but to make the assumption and to be shocked when the assumption is proved wrong is where we are mistaken. The truth is what? The truth is we don't know the future. We can't know the future. The only time we can know is in this momentary present. That's where the knowing is. So let me tell you a story. This is a story... A Sufi story. It is a story of a Sufi master who lived in a small village, and every morning he walked across the village square at the same time to go visit the same friend. Like clockwork. He did this every day. One day a police officer felt like poking fun at the master, and he said, Where are you going, Master? The master replied, I don't know. At which point the police officer looked at him like, what, he's playing with me? So he asked again. He said, every day you cross this square at the same time. Now tell me, where are you going? Again, the master said, I don't know. The officer thought he was being made fun of, so he insisted, don't play with me. Tell me the truth. Where are you going? Again, the master replied, I don't know. The police officer by now had lost his patience. He was quite miffed. And so he roughly arrested the old Sufi master and took him to jail for not cooperating with the law. (laughs) So the master was in jail. Later that day, The policeman went by the master's cell to see how he was doing. At which point, the master said to him, You see, I was right. (laughs) I did not know where I was going. And this is the truth. The truth is, we really do not know. We have plans that exist only in our heads. When we imagine we know how our plans will go, then we have set the stage for disappointment or worse. So can we look at this with our practice, with our investigation, with our awareness? Can we poke at this? Can we imagine what? will happen in that moment when our plans are interrupted. There is a saying, we must allow God to interrupt our plans. This is a spiritual practice, allowing for interruption, because we, it, it, it helps to break up that, that assumption of, that we know and that things will continue as we imagine they will. So, when your assumptions of continuity of your own life or another's is interrupted, what is your response? Our plans at some point will be severely interrupted. Our continuity will come to an end, and it's, you know, just the way it is. Can we allow for that idea? Can we allow for that awareness of that possibility? So the assumption of continuity is something that we can bring some attention to. Now I'd like to shift our focus to some of our assumptions and ideas and beliefs about death itself. Some of our attitudes towards death and dying. Of course, we are mostly here in this room, members of Western culture. Maybe we have our family of origin is not white European, or our culture that we grew up in is perhaps not Western culture. Perhaps our early experiences of death, or our philosophical or scientific training has given us a view of death or an attitude about death. So there are many influences that we can point to that exist, I'm sure, right in this room. And some of us may have contradictory ways of thinking about death. But I'd like to give a a kind of um, overview of some different attitudes and beliefs about death and dying that we may recognize as being present in our dominantly European Christian culture. Of course, the fact that you came here to an insight meditation retreat speaks of an openness on your part to a different vision of death than perhaps the one you were raised with. You know, you wouldn't have come here if there wasn't some interest in at least hearing about a different vision of death. Okay, from a mostly Western perspective, I think there are two main beliefs about death. The first is death as annihilation, that the body is who we are, and when the body goes, we're done, the end, it's over. The second belief about death we could point to is that's very common is death means judgment day where we are rewarded or punished by going to heaven or hell. So these are commonly held conventional beliefs prominent in western culture. And based on these ideas, either of annihilation or judgment, some common attitudes about death are one, enjoy life while you got it. Don't think about death. Don't be morbid. Avoid the topic as much as you can. Just live it up. Don't think about it. Another very common attitude about death is that death is the enemy, and it must be fought. Fight death. Dylan Thomas, do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. You know, that's, that's an attitude. And it is an attitude that we can see sometimes in the medical world, that death is the enemy, and when it comes, it is a defeat. The patient who is in in a vulnerable state and was aware of this attitude, you know, that he he or she should be fighting, you know, to live at all costs. They may feel this pressure. There was a, a student of mine who described her father, who had been a very hard charging CEO, wealthy guy who suddenly found himself dying, and all he could say to his daughter was, what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? As if it was a terrible mistake, and he was losing some, you know, he was, he had failed. Death as the ultimate defeat. Jack LaLanne, the fitness guru, said, I can't afford to die. It would wreck my image. As if it's, you know, not supposed to happen. What are some common Eastern views of death? Death in Eastern cultures from which Buddhism arises, Hinduism, Sufism, Islam. There, death is often seen as spiritual opportunity for awakening or for gaining a fortunate rebirth the view there is the body is not all of who we are the body is is something that we assume during our life like on loan but at death we take it off as we would a garment We continue, although in another form. Continuity of consciousness, but not of identity. This is a whole different view. Death is something that we can prepare for. Indeed, our entire practice, with its emphasis on letting go, is seen as preparation for death, the ultimate letting go the relevance of our spiritual practice is emphasized. Like the poet Rumi who said, what is found now will be found then. Meaning that our habits of mind will show up when we are dying. If we are practicing fear and aversion and anger, that will show up when we are dying if we are practicing acceptance and gratitude and peace calmness of being that will show up when we are dying and the other side of this is that when by contemplating death which is is recommended in many eastern spiritual traditions remembering death, contemplating death, bringing it close to your awareness in a in a regular way, it awakens us to what is most precious in life itself. So we are not forgetting what is here. We are remembering that this what is here that we love that is so precious and dear to us, completely dear to us. We want to be here for it. We want to be present for it. Another uh, view of death in Buddhism is that death doesn't exist in the way that we tend to think about it. We think of birth and death, they go together, yes, but we tend to have a lot of uh, concepts about what they are. Thich Nhat Hanh writes this, inviting us to open our awareness to the larger context of what we call birth and death. He gives this metaphor for birth and death. He says, it's like a wave on the ocean, Birth and death are like a wave on the ocean. The wave believes that she is subjected to birth and death. Every time she comes up and then begins to go down, she's afraid of dying. But if the wave realizes that she is water, she is no longer afraid. Before going up, she is water. Before going down, she is water. And after going down, she continues to be water. Then there is no death. So it's very important that the wave does some meditation and realize that she is wave (laughs) and that she is at the same time water. And when she knows she is water, she is no longer afraid of dying. She feels wonderful going up. She feels wonderful going down. She is free from fear. He continues When we know that birth and death are together always, we are no longer afraid of dying. They cannot be separated. This is a very deep meditation. You have to observe life throughout your days. So you see birth and death inter-are in everything, in trees and animals and weather and matter and energy. Scientists have pronounced that there is no birth and no death. There is only transformation. What you call birth and death are only transformation. And he gives a, a footnote from a, uh, the father of modern chemistry, Antoine Lavoisier, who said, nothing, and this was the 18th century, he said, nothing is lost, nothing is created, all is transformed. Nothing is lost, nothing is created, all is transformed. So in very broad brushstrokes, these are some of the more well-known beliefs about death in the Western and Eastern religious traditions. Given whatever view we have about death, what we believe about it, what we assume about it, it will determine some of the attitudes we have about how to live our lives. A belief that death means annihilation might make us feel our morality is of no consequence, that we can get away with whatever we do here because it's all going to be over and, you know, who cares? Eat, drink, and be merry and don't don't consider the impact of your actions on others. If we view death as a bitter defeat it will make perhaps make us want to fight it off do everything we can to stay alive and of course there are whole industries built on this premise that you know we can we can keep it at bay we can you know the whole field of cryogenics is an example freeze dry your body put it on hold so that when they find the cure they can bring you back. I can think of nothing more of a nightmare than that myself. <laughs> like at my age to be frozen <laughs> and have to come back and deal with it all again. Oh my gosh. <laughs> If we see death as a mysterious transformative process which illuminates a spiritual dimension and gives us a glorious opportunity for further awakening, we will see our life and our practice as preparation. We are in the preparatory stages for dying. Because many of us have been exposed to both Western and Eastern perspectives, we may feel quite confused by all these different ideas and at a loss to know what to think about death. And, you know, that's okay because the truth is we, nobody knows what really happens. The dead don't come back and tell us. We've never been dead yet, so how can we know? We can't. So here are some ideas about death from a variety of people. People have wondered about death through the ages, you know, over and over. So here's some wonderings. This is from uh, contemporary author David Searles. He said, seeing death as the end of life is like seeing the horizon as the end of the ocean. Yeah, it's a hum, isn't it? Here's, here's something about death. I won't tell you who wrote it to see if you can guess. Let us deprive death of its strangeness. Let us frequent it. Let us get used to it. Let us have nothing more often in mind than death. We do not know where death awaits us, so let us wait for it everywhere. To practice death is to practice freedom. Who do you think said that? Any ideas? Huh? The Buddha. Yeah, that would be a... What else? Who else? <laughs> You're going to be surprised. I was surprised. It does sound kind of Buddhist, but... who? Huh? <laughs> Montaigne, the French philosopher said that. Here's another uh another quiz. Who said this one? Death, when we consider it closely, is the true goal of our existence. I have formed during the last few years such close relations with this best and truest friend of mankind that this image is not only no longer terrifying to me, but is indeed very soothing and consoling. And I thank my God for graciously granting me the opportunity of learning that death is the key which unlocks the door to our true happiness. Rilke? No. Billy Graham? Billy Graham, no. <laughs> <laughs> Kevorkian. Huh? Kevorkian. Cavorkian, no. No. Mozart. Isn't that surprising? And here's one from the Greek philosopher Epictetus. I love this. He says, Never say about anything, I have lost it, but only I have given it back. Is your child dead? it has been given back. It is your wife dead. She has been returned. Isn't that beautiful? Henry Miller, of course you don't die. Nobody dies. (laughs) Death doesn't exist. You only reach a new level of vision, a new realm of consciousness, a new unknown world. Okay, I'll finish with Dingo Kensi Rinpoche. When death finally comes, you will welcome it like an old friend, being aware of how dreamlike and impermanent the phenomenal world really is. Read it again. When death finally comes, you will welcome it like an old friend being aware of how dreamlike and impermanent the phenomenal world really is. You know, we can taste that right now when we think back on our lives. Think back 30 years. Does that seem dreamlike or what? And where is it? Gone. It exists only where? In our poor memories. (laughs) If that... (laughs) So we have a lot of input about death. We have a lot of ideas about death, we have a lot of attitudes about death. What are we going to be informed by? For those of us who practice dharma, it is here that we look for our understanding of what this what what is it that we're talking about as death. And that's not a bad place to look because it's based in our own deep exploration of mind and body, of consciousness, of awareness, of what is here, what is real, what is true in our experience. In our culture, we don't have a lot of experience of being with dying people unless it is part of our profession. Most of us... You have to like look around to even find a dying person to be with. We may live a long time before we have occasion to be with someone who is dying. When we do appear at someone's bedside who's dying, we may feel unprepared, perhaps anxious to do the right thing, but not sure what that would be. Should we act as if the person isn't really dying but will soon get well? Is that what we should do? Is this our notion that being positive and cheerful is what is needed? Should we encourage the person to keep up the good fight, something like that? Is it bad manners to acknowledge when somebody is actively dying if say, you're at the bedside and the whole family is like in complete denial? You know, what do you do? is it better to demonstrate how much you care by openly grieving with the person or pleading with them not to die what is it that we we can offer really and the medical system you know doesn't really support uh are perhaps our concern for the inner experience of dying or the existential meaning of death. The medical fo- focus, and you know, in some ways rightly so, has been on caring for the body and restoring it to health. But in the Buddhist tradition, the focus is on the transformation of consciousness in the process of dying and at the moment of death and so the focus is not so much on preserving the body as it is on helping the person be in a state of mind that is conducive to furthering their their transformation it is clear that that from our practice we know that our own capacity to prepare the mind through meditation, that our capacity to uh, ride the waves of change, to be equanimous in the face of changes in the mind and body which are unfamiliar, that all of this can be preparation for dying in a relatively peaceful manner. Philosopher Evan Thompson writes about the process of dying, Clinicians and end-of-life caregivers know that one's state of mind strongly influences the dying process. A mind that is trained will be more calm and equanimous, more accepting and allowing of the physical processes taking place. This is the opposite of what Woody Allen so famously claimed. I don't mind dying, I just don't want to be there when it happens. (laughs) We are going to be there when it happens. We are going to be there when it happens, unless we're knocked unconscious or perhaps drugged up or something. Why not prepare the mind, become somewhat familiar with the territory of change and impermanence and no-self? So I'd like to share with you what the Buddha uh, experienced at the age of 80. He wasn't quite dying yet, but he was feeling the infirmity of his body. (laughs) My glasses. Thank you. I don't know if these will work, but... No, no. <laughs> Thank you, Bonnie. I had my glasses, but anyway. Okay. He said to Ananda, his, atten- his attendant, this was when he was 80 years old, I am old now, Ananda, and aged. My years have turned 80 just as an old cart is kept going with the help of bamboo strips, it seems to me as if the Tathagata's body is kept going with the help of bamboo strips. <laughs> the only time the Tatagata's body feels at ease is when, not attending to any theme at all, he enters and remains in the themeless concentration of awareness. Therefore, each of you should remain. Remain with the Dharma as an island, the Dharma as your refuge, without anything else as a refuge. And how does a monk remain with the Dharma as an island, the Dharma as a refuge, without anything else as a refuge? A monk remains focused on the body, on the feelings on the mind states, on the mental qualities. In other words, the four foundations of mindfulness, which we have been practicing somewhat on this retreat. Putting aside greed and distress with reference to the world, this is how a monk remains with the Dharma as an island, with the Dharma as his refuge, without anything else as a refuge. And then he goes on to recommend this same to all of his followers. The body will die. We can agree on that. What we do internally with that experience, what we do with our attention, with our awareness, with our, with our wisdom, you could say, that we have cultivated through meditation is up to us. So now I'll I'll share something that um, Andrew Olinsky wrote. He's a scholar back in Massachusetts, um, and I, I I particularly like the way he expresses his appreciation of this practice. So so I think this is a complement to what the Buddha would have said. Andy Andy Olinsky says, According to the Buddhist way of looking at things, each moment of consciousness is a precious gift. Awareness itself is the primary currency of the human condition, and as such, it deserves to be spent carefully. Sitting quietly in a serene environment, letting go of the various petty disturbances that roil and diminish consciousness, and experiencing as fully as possible the poignancy of this fleeting moment. This is what we've been doing, right? This is an enterprise of deep, intrinsic value, an aesthetic experience beyond words. The more unified, stable, and attentive the mind is at any moment, the more profound the experience (coughs) Our contemporary view of consciousness is so different from this, so much less. It is as if the accomplishment of mere tasks is of primary value, while the quality of awareness with which these tasks are undertaken is irrelevant. For many of us, the deep states of tranquil alertness of which the mind is is capable are entirely unknown. So he's pointing to what the Buddha was pointing to, saying that there's something of great value in knowing how to contemplate the mind, to train the mind to dwell in these beautiful states of harmony and, and stability of mind and heart, even in the face of death. This is what we have to work with as we approach this, these end years of life. Of course, some of us here in this room may live another 30 years, 20 years, maybe longer. We don't know. And there is this sense of how are we and that's why we we chose that repeating question for the inquiry today you know what matters to you now knowing that life is going to end this being this in this body is going to come to an end but what what is it that matters now the two things that we could say quite generally describe how to prepare for dying that come out of our meditation practice. The first is living a good, virtuous life, living with virtue, living as much as possible without harming yourself or without harming others. This is such a important and beautiful way to prepare because why? Likelihood is of dying, coming to death without regret, without remorse, without guilt, without shame. So there is this task at the end of life of, completing, of making amends, perhaps. So living a good life is one of the best, very best ways of preparing ourselves for death. The other is learning, and this is lifetime learning, learning how to let go. We do that in our practice every time we come back Every time we, you know, from the very beginning you sit down on your cushion, you're told to return your attention to the present experience. Whether it's the breath or the body or whatever your anchor is, bringing your attention back here, coming back here, over and over and over again. That is the beginning of learning to let go. And it cannot be learned enough, it seems. But the more we do it, the more we see the uh, benefits that actually letting go leads quite profoundly and directly to the end of suffering. So I'd like to close with a poem about letting go written by Reverend Sapphire Rose. It's called, She Let Go. She let go. Without a thought or a word, she let go. She let go of the fear. She let go of the judgments. She let go of the confluence of opinions swarming around her head. She let go of the committee of indecision within her. She let go of all the right reasons. Wholly and completely, without hesitation or worry, she just let go. She didn't ask anyone for advice. She didn't read a book on how to let go. She didn't search the scriptures. She just let go. She let go of all of the memories that held her back. She let go of all of the anxiety that kept her from moving forward. She let go of the planning and all of the calculations about how to do it just right. She didn't promise to let go. She didn't journal about it. She didn't write the projected date in her daytimer. She made no public announcement, put no ad in the paper. She didn't post it on her Facebook page. She didn't check the weather report or read her daily horoscope. She just let go. She didn't analyze whether she should let go. She didn't call her friends to discuss the matter. She didn't do a five-step spiritual mind treatment. She didn't call the prayer line. She didn't utter one word. She just let go. No one was around when it happened. There was no applause, no congratulations. No one thanked her or praised her. No one noticed a thing. Like a leaf falling from a tree, she just let go. There was no effort. There was no struggle. It wasn't good. It wasn't bad. It was what it was, and it is just that. In the space of letting go, she let it all be. A small smile came over her face. A light breeze blew through her. The sun and the moon continued to shine. So let's sit together. Thank you for your attention. There's now a half an hour for walking before our final sit together at nine o'clock. And please thank you for keeping noble silence this evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit